So let me try something. He is risen. See, it's, this, it's true this week too. It's true this week too. And will forever be true. You know, um, I was in that elder meeting as well. And that pile up of prayer requests for people who are sick, who are struggling with cancer or, you know, physical ailments, back uh, things and all those things. And it can get discouraging. Certainly can. But Jesus is a risen Savior. And He says that this is not all there is. There's hope beyond this life. And God, He can meet us in this life, but there's so much more than what He has. And here's something I, I want to probably steal some thunder from a future sermon here, but I'm going to say it anyway. Every person that Jesus healed died. But every person that has faith in Him has life in Him beyond this life. He is indeed our living hope. But as we talked about last week, and if you have your Bibles, you might want to crack it open to Luke 24. You remember that His disciples had a hard time figuring that out. And we're going to talk about that today. But before I go into that, I have a true confession here. And I don't want to sound like a kind of a grumpy old man or a curmudgeon here, but, you know, I get frustrated with technology. I get frustrated especially with uh, software, right? Because it's constantly updating itself over and over again. And I've just gotten used to this operating system, right? And I know where things are, and then they give us a new operating system, and it's like, oh, how do I do this now? It's like a Where's Waldo search, right? And, you're, and it's like, it's always changing. And, and within that, one of the things I get frustrated with is, is the whole password thing. And it's a thing they call two-factor identification. Do you know what that is? I think a lot of you do, right? You, you put in your password, and then they want either a, a phone number for them to text, so you can enter in a, you know, a passcode or an email or, or a PIN, and, you know, and, and, or the worst is this, right? They, they're wanting you to change your password like every six months, right? I mean, it's hard enough to remember 4321, right? Or password, right? But then they make me change it. So it's 1234. And I get it. I get it, right? Because, you know, there's malware out there. There are people who are trying to hack into things. There's phishing emails, and, and people are trying to steal your identity. And I get that. And the question that these software companies are asking when you log in is, is, is it really you? Is it really you? And that's what the disciples were struggling with at the beginning of the resurrection, right? Because they had seen him die. They were convinced they had put all their eggs in his basket. They were convinced that he was the Messiah. He was God's chosen king. He was the son of God. Maybe they even believed that he was God in the flesh. And then they saw him die. 
And all those eggs were smashed. And as I said last week, when Jesus died, all their hope died with him. Here's the hard, here's the weird thing though. Jesus, throughout his ministry, told them, guys and gals, I am going to suffer. The Son of Man is going to suffer. He's going to die. And on the third day, he is going to rise from the dead. He tells them multiple times that this is going to happen. And so we were in chapter 24, right? In the first 12 verses, the women show up at the tomb. The tomb is open. His body's missing. There are strips of linen lying on the ground. And then these guys in really shiny clothes show up. They're angels. And they say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen, just like he told you. Do you remember? And the scripture says, yes, then the women remembered. The women are going, oh, okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe this really did happen. And they go back to the men. And they tell them all that they've seen and all that they've heard. And they think it's complete nonsense. They think it's foolishness. But Peter, he does go check it out. He goes back. He finds an open tomb. He finds an empty tomb. He finds strips of linen on the ground. And he wonders what happened. And so what they're left with at this point of the story is rumors. Rumors of hope. Then Luke goes on, starting in verse 13, and he talks about two disciples. Two disciples who are on their way to a, a little town called Emmaus. And they're making their way. They too are distraught. They too are downtrodden. And they're talking to each other about all that they've experienced, trying to figure this out. And then Jesus, incognito, they can't recognize him, comes up upon them. And ask them, what are you talking about? And they share with him all the disappointment, all the confusion, all that happened, all their broken hope. And Jesus, incognito, proceeds to show them from the Old Testament Scriptures why it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to die, and to be raised from the dead before he entered his glory. Now, remember, their hope was dead. And all of a sudden there's a heartbeat. Thump, thump. Thump, thump. Maybe, maybe this is actually true. And so, you know, the story says, you know, they're going to Emmaus, it's about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they show up and they say, hey, 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 it's getting dark, it's getting late, why don't you come and eat supper with us? Because, you know, the sun's going to go down. That was just a pretext, because they wanted to hear more. They hoped he had more hope to share. And as you, if we read through the scriptures, Jesus breaks the bread and then they recognize him. They recognize him as the risen Christ. Now the question, and then so hope has revealed himself. The question lingers, what did they see? Was it a ghost? Was it a vision? Was it a hallucination? And this is a very important question. Both to you, for them, and for me. And as for what's next and how we ought to live our lives and where we ought to put our true hope. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dig deep into God's Word in Luke chapter 24. 
So Lord Jesus, I thank you for this affirmation that you are our living hope. And would you open our eyes today to see that? Would you help us to see that in your word? Would you help us to see that it is really you? That you would give us an authentication in your word and help us to live in the hope of who you are and your resurrection that will bring about one day for those of us who put our faith in you, our resurrection. So Lord Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Use your word to do your work in our hearts. Amen. So, talking about authentication. Hope authenticates himself. Pick it up at verse 33. We're kind of overlapping from the the two disciples and Emmaus. They, the two disciples, got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven. Remember there were twelve, but Judas betrayed Jesus and killed himself. So there are eleven now. Eleven, and those with them, and they assembled together, saying, It is true, this is the disciples saying this to these two guys, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon, Simon Peter. And then they, then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Now this is a complete reversal, right? First they're telling the women that this is nonsense. Now they're convinced that Jesus has somehow been resurrected and somehow risen from the dead because he's appeared to Peter and now to these two disciples who had been in Emmaus. But they weren't quite sure what that meant. He's appeared. What does that mean? But here's one thing I want to point out. The rumors, supposed rumors, that the women had shared were actually true. They were actually true. And here's just a little point that I need to catch myself on sometimes. Are there times where there is a brother or a sister who is sharing a testimony about what God is doing or has done, and we discount them or doubt them because somehow in our minds we have relegated them to be less than. They're not as educated. They're not as theologically sharp, what have you. And we're missing sometimes what God is actually doing. Because God oftentimes uses the weak things of this world to shame those things that are wise. So all, my, all I would caution you to do is be careful not to discount things too much. I think you need to ask, is it biblical? Yes, that's, that's a great question. But be careful not to discount it because we have earthly values of people that are not necessarily heavenly values. So just keep that in mind. But again, the question is, what did these disciples believe about the resurrected Jesus? Was he a spirit? Was he a vision? And so they're about to have a discussion about what they think happened. But Jesus will join them and inform them, it really is me. Pick it up at verse 36. And while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. 
And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Again, they believed that Jesus was alive somehow, but they weren't expecting him to show up right there among them, unannounced. How dare he? And when they saw him, and he does, they think he's a ghost. Now why? Why did they think he was a ghost? Luke doesn't tell us so much, but John does. John tells us that the doors were locked. There's no getting in that room without having someone unlock the door. And yet Jesus appears right in the midst of them. And he's very gracious. He he knows his presence is going to startle them. And he says, peace to you. But he wants them to know the truth also. That it really is him. It really is him that has risen from the dead. And so he addresses their doubts. And he gives what I call a three-factor, three-factor identification here. Verse 38, he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts raise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. First factor, the touch test. The touch test. Yes, guys, I did get in here. I am the Messiah. I am, I am the Lord. My body has been resurrected. I'm able to get in here, but it's, it's me. It's my flesh. I'm not a spirit. Reach out and touch me. Reach out and touch me. A ghost doesn't have flesh and blood. You know, the Apostle John, years later, writing his first letter, his first epistle, he says this in his opening words, reflecting on this. In John, 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, he says, What was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. We proclaim concerning the word of life, talking about Jesus. I was there. I reached out and I touched him. Now this is an important detail, because there are many people who are trying to explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It didn't happen. They, they They just saw what they wanted to see. They just had a group hallucination. They all had a group dream. No. No. Jesus invited them to touch him. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. He was physically there. And what's more, verse 40, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Authentication point number two. The Mark's test. The Mark's test. Again, Luke is understated as you know, he, he intimates. He reached out and showed him his hands and his feet. Why? Because his hands and his feet were where the nails had pierced. John is much more um, direct as he invites 
the Apostle Thomas, who doesn't believe, to put his hands in his nail-scarred hands, in his nail-scarred feet, put his hand in his uh, spear-pierced side. But here's the important part about this. This is about continuity. This is about continuity. It was not someone else who went to the cross. It wasn't one of the disciples that at the last minute substituted himself. Or they got the wrong guy. It was Jesus himself. Now you may think, what? where does that come from? Well, it comes from Islam. Islam says that Judas, not Iscariot, some sort of righteous man, went to the cross instead of Jesus. Because that would have been a, a defilement of a holy prophet. They believe Jesus is a prophet, but not the prophet, not the Messiah, not God in the flesh. But Jesus says, no, look, reach out, see my hands, my feet. These are the identifying marks. I'm the same person that went to the cross, that died, that rose from the dead. These are the identifying marks. Let me tell you a funny story. I'm from California, and I was born in the 60s. was a grade school child in the 70s. And so in those times, the hippie movement and the Jesus movement were all kind of firing off all at once and kind of cross-pollinating. It was fashionable for young men to grow their hair long and grow their beards. Jesus hair, Jesus beard, Jesus sandals, what have you. One Sunday at an evangelical church, a young man in his 30s put on a robe, long hair and a beard, walked down the middle of the aisle, in the middle of the service. Everyone's looking at the guy. And he turns around and he says, I'm Jesus. Senior pastor, thinking quickly, okay, how do I defuse this bomb? He says, if you're Jesus, where are your scars? In your hands and in your feet. He says, oh, they healed. He says, no, sir. No, sir. The nail scars in his hands and his feet and the spear in his side are the identifying, the authenticating marks of the risen Christ. Those are the identifying marks. Why does the, why does the revelation, uh, revelation in, I believe it's chapter 4, say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He is one who appears as though slain, and yet he has risen. He is alive. So again, the identifying marks that authenticates who Jesus is. But you know what? <laughs> it's still harder to prove, it's still hard to convince these disciples that this is really what's happening. It's harder than proving your own identity to Apple ID or Microsoft. What's going on here is verse 41 that says, and they still did not believe it because of the joy, because of joy and amazement. The disciples do not trust themselves. They don't even trust their own senses at this point. They're saying, this is too good to be true. I, I'm not sure I can believe it. I'm not sure I can believe it. Maybe I'm seeing what I want to see. And they hold themselves suspect. And, and part of you goes, come on, guys. 
get with the program. This is the risen Christ. But I actually find it a little bit refreshing, and I kind of I find it actually compelling that they understand that there's a human tendency sometimes to convince yourself of something you want to be true. And so Jesus is willing to go to this third step of authentication. It's the food test. It's the food test. He says to them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. Jesus is showing them that they are not dreaming. Now let me tell you, there are many societies that offer up food to dead ancestors or gods or what have you. And they put it in a little shrine, and what happens? That food slowly dissipates, maybe by, you know, animals coming in and eating it, or just, you know, something shrivels over time and it decays. But it takes time, right? They give him a piece of fish and he eats it right away. It's consumed. He is alive. He's a living man. This is not a spirit. This is flesh and bone who can eat this food, even though he is risen from the dead. And here's, here's something I want to talk to you about. And You know, sometimes we're so close to something, we don't really see it. But think about what kind of a document the Gospels are. The Gospels are historical eyewitness. They are not fairy tales or fables. They don't start out as once upon a time. No, they set a very specific time. They're not poetry or metaphor. They are a historical eyewitness. Luke is very careful with times and names. Matthew and John are both witnesses because they were disciples. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus. Mark was the disciple of uh, Simon Peter, and he recounts what Simon Peter recounts. And there may be some differing details between the Gospels and some different emphasis, but there is consistency especially with the account of the risen Christ. That he rose in the flesh. He's not a ghost. He's not a vision. He's not a hallucination. He really had flesh. You could reach out and touch him. He really had the marks. And he's really alive. He's really alive. Now, some people may say, well, you know, those guys just made that up. They liked Jesus, and when he died, they wanted to keep his name going on. And that's a fair, I guess, conjecture. But here's the thing. Let's just take the 11 remaining disciples. Ten of those remaining 11 disciples will go to a painful martyr's death, still proclaiming that Jesus has risen from the dead. None of them recants. And the one who doesn't die a painful death, he's put in exile. That's the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. He dies of natural causes, but he goes to his death proclaiming that Jesus has risen from the dead. Here's the thing for me. 
the change from discouragement to despondency to joy and commitment to make this good news known, in my mind, is too great. The change is too great to think that they would die for a lie, that they would, they would have this grand conspiracy and live and, and die painful deaths or lonely deaths for something they knew was a lie. And so I think there's good reason. It's reasonable, if you will, that the Gospels are reliable and to authenticate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's an academic view. But here's a faith or hope view. Because Jesus would say this of himself, I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. That's hope. That's hope for the cancer patient. That's hope for the elder who is living and they know they don't have much time. That's hope actually for you and me. Because while we probably plan to live many more years or many more days, you could die on your way in an accident on the way home. Not trying to be morbid. I'm just telling you about the reality of life. We all have seen it. We all know it. There's hope, and it's, it's hope in him. But the end question that Jesus asks at the end of this statement is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Have you put your faith in the risen Christ, who is the resurrection and the life? Because he wants to give you life and give it something you don't have within yourself. Jesus Christ is our living hope. But what's more, this hope is not just for the small band of Jews or even Israel and the Jews, just them. This hope is for all. It's for the whole world. And so Jesus addresses them now that they're convinced that he is risen. And he said to them, verse 44, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And the repentance of forgiveness of sins must will be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are my witnesses of these things. I am going to send you out, send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. First thing I want to point out is Jesus is pointing out this was God's plan the whole time. What happened to Jesus? Again, the, the disciples didn't have categories for a dead Messiah. But after going through all this, after Jesus had told them, Jesus shows his disciples from the scriptures what happened to him had happened according to the scriptures, according to God's plan. And I'm just going to throw out one easy, low-hanging fruit verse. There are many more, and if you want to find some of those, you can listen to last week's sermon. But this is uh, Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. 
That's what Jesus told the, the two disciples on the, on the road to Emmaus. So this is a fourth factor of identification. It lines up with what the Scripture says, what happened to him, that he would suffer, uh, die, and rise on the third day. Now here's, those of us who've been in God's Word for a while, and we kind of know both the Old and New Testament, he says he will rise from the dead on the third day. And maybe you're thinking, where does it say that in the Old Testament? Where does it say that? And Jesus is not speaking about a specific prophecy. But this is what we call a typology. A just as statement. Jesus would say in John chapter uh, 3, verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man will be lifted up to draw people to himself that all men believe in him might be saved. It's a just-as statement. So there are three just-as statements I want to point to in the Old Testament. You can look them up yourselves maybe a little bit later. But let's start with Genesis chapter 22. God calls uh, Abraham to take his son Isaac, his only son, to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him, this son of promise. And there's a lot of tension. Okay, we got the wood, we've got the fire, we've got, you know... We've got the knife. Where's the sacrifice? It's a three-day journey. Verse 24. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So they're almost there. This is all going to take place this day. Isaac is going to be placed on the altar. Abraham's going to draw the knife, ready to strike the blow of sacrifice. And God says, Abraham, stop. For now I know you fear God. And in the thicket, God provides the lamb, the ram. It happens on the third day. So just as Isaac was to be sacrificed on the third day, he is resurrected, if you will, by God providing a lamb. Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And if you know about Hosea, it's talking to an unfaithful people. And this is, the people of Israel had gone into exile. Not at this point, but he's warning about this. But for them to be brought back from exile was kind of a resurrection. And if you read this with prophetic eyes, it makes sense in light of what Jesus has done. Let us come to the Lord, for he has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Just as the people of Israel or Judah were, if you will, resurrected and restored to live in the God's presence from exile, so we are restored by Jesus rising from the dead on the third day. And then here's the classic, and Jesus mentions this as far as the third day. You've got Jonah. Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. Jonah, you know, was on the, on the run from God, and uh, God sends a, he sends a storm, and Jonah tells the 
sailors to throw him overboard because he is the cause of the storm. And a, a whale swallows him, right? And he's in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. And if you read his prayer in chapter 2, he says, I am calling out from Sheol. I'm calling out from the grave, if you will. So just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so Jesus would be in the grave for three days. Jesus will say this in Luke chapter 11, verse 30, For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, being in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation, that is a sign, having been in the grave for three days and, and for three days. So, just to help you understand that, I mean, you know, just so you understand it, but here's the point again, this was God's plan all along. Number two, this was God's purpose all along. Verse 46, this is what was written, the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name, all nations, to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. Understand that the coming of Messiah was not about kicking out the Romans. It's about reconciliation of sinful mankind to a holy God. Forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Repentance and faith in His name. Repentance and faith in His name. And when we talk about being in His name, that doesn't mean speaking the magic words in Jesus' name. It is putting your hope and your faith in all that He did, all that He accomplished in living this life, dying and being risen from the dead. And taking it one step further, there is no other name in which we can find salvation. No other way for people to be saved. And it's not just to the Jews, it's to all nations. And it begins in Jerusalem. I think most of you know this here in this room, but if you don't, the book of Acts is the sequel to Luke. Right? And what do we see at the beginning of the book of Acts? They wait in the city of Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit falls. The church is born. The gospel spreads locally. And then God brings persecution and the gospel spreads to the known world. This good news goes to everybody in, in the, uh, the Roman Empire. Why is this important? Again, because as the Apostle Peter would testify, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given under mankind by which we must be saved. There is only one way. We don't like that. We're Americans. We want options. But God says this is the only way. And if you think about it from a parental standpoint, if you give up your child to save the whole world, and people say, nah, I want other options, that is an insult to the living God. But number two, this is available to all. Not just the Jews, not just the disciples, for the whole world. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for everyone, for all who believe. First, to the Jew, it's going to start in Jerusalem, 
and then to the Gentile, and spread throughout the whole world. There's only one way, but it's available to all. This hope is for all. And it's what God purposed and planned in sending his Messiah to reconcile sinful men and women to himself. Number three, number three, what Jesus will say to his disciples, you are my proclaimers. You are my proclaimers. Verse 48, you are my witnesses of these things. The first century disciples, these 11 apostles, had a specific job to testify to the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, you could not be an apostle without having seen the risen Christ. And they have to make this known. They need to be his witnesses to Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And they do. And as I said, 10 out of 11 of them die painful deaths for this. But it's not just the details of what happened. It is the meaning of the message, the gospel, the good news. This is what happened to Jesus, and this is why. This is what God was doing and what he wants to do in your life. That they would be his witnesses, that they would be his proclaimers. And we have the same role today, folks. Maybe you and I are not witnesses to the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we can talk about what he has done and what he is doing in our lives. He's given us that role to be his witnesses to those who are around us. Because Jesus commands us to do this. I have kind of connected with my past lately on YouTube. There is a, uh, a gentleman named Cliff Connectly. Cliff Connectly was an apologist would go to secular campuses, would get out in the middle of the you know, quad or the, the big square where all the students would gather, and he'd make a presentation about the compelling reasons for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then it was open season on Cliff. And he would answer all the questions. And this guy was doing it when I was in college, and he still does it from time to time. He's a pastor now on the East Coast. But I've been looking on, on YouTube and watching some of his interactions lately. If you want to look him up, it's, it just do on YouTube is, is give me an answer and you'll see him interact. But it's so funny to me. What's so, it's so funny to me. Maybe it's not funny, maybe sad. Is I see him interact with students. And of course, there's always the students say, Why are you here? Why are you telling this? It's like they're being offended that he would come and proclaim this message. It's like, you're violating our civil rights. The thought of separation from church and state. And the thought of the university being a, a marketplace of ideas where the ideas can compete, we can talk about it, is, it seems to be completely lost on our public universities. It's pretty amazing. But Cliff doesn't back off. And from, a, you know, from an American standpoint, it's still, it's still a First Amendment right. It's still free speech, right? From a, a Christian standpoint, it's because Jesus has called me to be his witness. So there's an obedience factor. But second factor, because it's good news. And you need this good news. It's changed me. And Jesus wants to change you. And remember, Jesus is still for his enemies. 
He took a man named Saul of Tarsus and changed him. He's done that in many other lives as well. But we are to be his proclaimers. And last of all, you'll be enabled by God's power to do this. Verse 49. I'm going to send you out, excuse me, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And again, this is another reason for the hope of the resurrection. Because as Jesus leaves this earth, God sends his Holy Spirit to dwell within the believers, to give them power that they do not have in themselves. These these disciples are transformed from cowards to conquerors. They change from fearful to faith-filled. And I say that, I don't say fearful to fearless, because I don't think they were fearless. I think there are moments where, you know, they're waiting for the axe to fall. But they were faith-filled. They had hope beyond this life. And they're still ordinary men like you and me. They're not flawless but they were filled with the extraordinary power of the presence of the living God living in them. Come to live in them, come to dwell in them, and come to make a temple in their lives of ordinary believers. If you want to read about that, you can go to John 14 and 15, Acts 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But it's not just the message. It's the means that God gives to proclaim the message. It's not just proclaiming, it's the power to do so. You know, a few years ago, we did have the privilege to go through the book of Acts. And sometimes, the book of Acts is titled as the Acts of the Apostles. That is a false title, I think. It really is the Acts of the Holy Spirit as he carries along the apostles. Because they don't have a plan. The Holy Spirit acts, and the gospel spreads. It's what the Holy Spirit is doing in them. And here's my own testimony from my own life, folks. I know when I rely on my own resources, my own planning, my own wit, my own thinking, if you will, make that the source of even trying to do God's will, I find myself frustrated and I find myself hitting a brick wall. But when I slow down and say, Lord Jesus, what do you want to do in me and through me and through our church? I find I'm much more fruitful and God does things that I do not expect When I slow down and ask for wisdom, how do I handle this? How do I move forward with this? He provides. And when I see that in others, I say, wow. Another factor of authentication that Jesus is alive and well. See, we weren't ever meant to do this on our own. We were meant to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And it is the fifth factor of authentication. And we can say, Jesus, that really is you. That really is you. That gives us the power to bring a message of hope to a world that needs it. So my friends, my conjecture is, Jesus really is alive. There really is power in the resurrection. 
And He wants to live His life in us and through us. And we're going to be talking a little bit about that even more so. Because I believe the power of the resurrection is the power for living the Christian life. So, let me pray, and then I'll invite the worship team to come and close us. Jesus, I thank you that you are the risen Lord. And the same power that raised you from the dead is within us. And you want to show yourself alive and well in us. So would you come and do so and make us, first of all, deeply in love with you, convinced of who you are, and then give us grace through your Holy Spirit to proclaim your good news, because it really is good news. I thank you for this message that I have the privilege to proclaim. Lord, whatever is dross, let it burn away, drop away. But Lord, plant your word deep within our hearts and bear fruit in our lives, fruit that will last. And Lord Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen.